evidence and answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zucran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetics scholars defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time. Serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. One of the most important facets of the Christmas story is the miraculous virgin birth of Christ. However, critics argue that the virgin birth account is legendary and actually borrowed from the Greek mystery religions that also have virgin birth accounts. Can we believe in the Christmas story? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing a question of the week. Now he presents a reasonable case for the miraculous birth of Christ. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Question of the Week. And it's Christmas time, and we're celebrating all over the world the birth of Christ. And the question this week is this, can we believe in the Christmas story? Now, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, one of the most important aspects of Christmas is the miraculous virgin birth of Christ. However, this is one of the most important aspects of the Christmas story, but it's also one of the most attacked by atheists and skeptics. One reason is that if it is true, it builds a strong case that Jesus is indeed the unique divine Son of God. And throughout the centuries, skeptics have presented arguments and alternative explanations for the birth of Christ, such as uh, the virgin birth is derived from Greek pagan mythology that also has its, quote, virgin birth accounts, or that Jesus was some kind of illegitimate child. Well, can we believe in the Christmas story? Can we believe in the virgin birth? And is there evidence of Christ's unique birth? Well, first, let's answer some objections raised against the virgin birth of Christ. First, the question often asked is, is a virgin birth even possible? Well, if there is a God who can act, then there can be acts of God. As we discussed last week, can we believe in miracles? If God exists, then there can be acts of God. If God exists, then miracles are possible. There's a God who can act, then there can be acts of God. And we stated last week that miracles are not only possible, they're actual. The greatest miracle has already occurred. Genesis 1.1, God created the universe out of nothing. And if God can create the universe out of nothing, would it be so hard for God to create life in a virgin's womb? God exists. Miracles are possible. God can create the universe out of nothing. It's no problem for him to accomplish a virgin birth. So it's only a person with an anti-supernatural bias that will discount the possibility of miracles. And as we talked about last week, and if you want to look at last week's show, indeed, in order to prove Miracles are not possible at all. You have got to prove God does not exist, right? And to definitively, without a shadow of a doubt, prove there is no God 
is practically impossible for the atheist to do. And in fact, as we stated in several shows in the past, there's strong evidence that indeed God exists. The argument from first cause, whatever has a beginning must have a cause, and the universe has a beginning, therefore we must identify its cause. The design argument, the fact that the universe displays complexity and design points to an intelligent designer. And the moral argument that we all, people all over the world, adhere to a universal moral law code. And a moral law points to a moral lawgiver. So the evidence that a God exists is pretty compelling. And if God exists, miracles are possible and reasonable to believe. And the virgin birth would be a miracle, an act of God. And if God exists, then miracles like the virgin birth are reasonable to believe. So a virgin birth is reasonable because there is strong evidence that an all-powerful God who can create life does indeed exist. Now let's look at the second objection here. Critics allege that the story of Christ's virgin birth comes from Greek mythological accounts that have their own virgin birth narrative. Now is there a pagan connection here between Christ's virgin birth and these pagan accounts? If you compare the Greek myths of virgin births to Christ's birth, you're going to see very little parallels. First of all, we all understand that these Greek pagan myths happen in the realm of legend or mythology, whereas the Gospels, when you read them, do not have the character of myth or legend, but they have the character of historical accounts. For example, Luke chapter 3 verse 1 gives you the context in which these events take place. They name real historical figures, the life of real people and when they rule to give you a time framework and places, specific places, where these events occurred. You look in the Greek myth mythological accounts, you don't see these kinds of historical reference here. For example, Luke chapter 3 verse 1, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Numerous references here to historical people, real historical people who ruled at this time, giving you a chronological framework. Also tells you the region where they govern. It's giving you a geographical kind of framework. This kind of historical detail you do not find in Greek mythology. In the Greek mythological legends, you really don't know where the events take place or when exactly they take place. This kind of precise detail given to you by Luke and the gospel writers in their accounts show you this is not a mythological work. It doesn't have that flavor. It's giving you the composition of a historical work. Not only that, there are hundreds of archaeological and historical records that confirm the historical accuracy of the gospel. We have found hundreds of historical artifacts, coins, plaques, 
structures, historical records, Christian and non-Christian, that verify the people, places, and events of the Gospels. So the Gospels do not have the character of mythology. Now, if you look at these Greek mythological stories of a, quote, virgin birth, they're not really virgin births, and they're mythical in nature. They don't have any historical references, and they're really little parallels to the virgin birth of Christ when you look at each individual story. For example, skeptics allege that the myth of Mithra, okay, one of the warrior gods, Mithras, he has a, quote, virgin birth. Well, if you look at the story of Mithras, what do you see? Well, according to the legend here, Mithra emerged suddenly from a rock, carrying a knife and wearing a Phrygian war helmet. And he battled against the sun, then a primeval bull, which he killed, and his blood became the ground for the life of mankind there. That's the story of Mithras. He jumped out of a rock, okay? Strong parallels you see between Mithras and the birth of Christ, I'm sure, right? How about Dionysius? Many say Dionysius has a virgin birth. Well, this is the legend of Dionysius. There are several versions, but this is one of the most popular. According to the legend here, Zeus had sexual relations with Semel and impregnates uh, this young maiden. Hera, Zeus's wife, in a jealous rage, whispers doubts in this young maiden's ear, in Semel's ear, and Semel begins to doubt if Zeus is indeed the father of her child. Deeply troubled, she goes into the temple of Zeus and demands to see Zeus, but Zeus is reluctant to appear. Finally, after many of her pleading and demands, Zeus finally appears. However, Semel is burnt to a crisp when she sees him. The fetus does survive. Zeus takes the fetus and sews it into his thigh and eventually gives birth to Dionysius. Strong parallels there. I'm sure you see between Christ and the legend of Dionysius. Also, there's another one that Augustus Caesar is virgin born. Well, in this particular legend, Caesar's mother is worshiping in the temple of Apollo when she falls asleep. Then the sun god Apollo turns into a snake and impregnates the mother of Augustus Caesar and thus giving birth to Augustus Caesar. Now when you study these quote virgin births, you'll see that they're not really virgin births and there's very little parallel between these stories and the birth of Christ. So a virgin birth is reasonable and the allegations that it comes from Greek mythology, it, it's a weak argument here. Now, is there a case for the virgin birth of Christ? Well, the first line of evidence comes from Bible prophecy. The virgin birth was predicted in biblical prophecy. The Bible has a legacy of fulfilled prophecy unlike any other book in the world. Over 500 prophecies were predicted in the Bible, most of which have come to pass. There are over a hundred prophecies made of Christ which he fulfilled. So when the Bible predicts a virgin birth, we can be pretty sure it's going to take place. Now we see these prophecies in the Old Testament. Here are a couple significant ones. Genesis 3.15, they're way back in the book of Genesis. 
God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There, that's a prophecy given that one day redemption shall come for mankind. And the phrase here, her offspring or the seed of a woman is important to note because this, remember, is a patriarchal society. And the lineage is usually traced through the father. But here, it only mentions the woman. It says the seed of the woman. The phrase, her offspring, or seed of the woman, implies then that the Savior would come by a woman, but not a natural father. Isaiah 7.14, here's that famous passage we recite at Christmas time. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the Hebrew word for virgin there is the Hebrew word Alma. Now, skeptics say that Alma refers to a young maiden. She can be married or she can be a virgin, right? It doesn't have to mean virgin. However, when you do a word study in the Old Testament and you do a word study on Alma, all the time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to mean a virgin. Genesis 24, verse 33, Exodus 2, 8, Psalm 68, 25. Proverbs 30, verse 19. It's used to mean a virgin. And it's for this reason that when the Greek translators of the Old Testament in the 3rd century B.C., all right, about 200 years before Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And when they translated, the, the Jewish translators translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the term Parthenos or virgin for Alma. So it's the Old Testament or the Jewish translators two centuries before Christ that translated Alma as virgin. Okay? It wasn't something that the Christians transposed later after the birth of Christ. So the virgin birth is prophesied in the Old Testament and there are also hints in the historical records that even the enemies of Christ knew that there was something unique regarding his birth. The mysterious nature of Jesus' birth is evidenced in passages like John 8 verse 41. Now the Jews and Christ are in a debate here and the religious leaders claim that Abraham is their father but Jesus challenges them to that claim and he says if you were the true children of Abraham then you would recognize me because I am the Messiah. You would recognize your Messiah. And the Jewish leaders respond with a strange response. They say, we are not illegitimate children, right? Implying that Jesus was illegitimate. In other words, the enemies of Christ knew that his birth was unusual and that Joseph was not really the father of Jesus, but he had some kind of unique or unusual birth. The Jewish Talmud attributes Jesus' birth to a Roman soldier whom Mary had immoral relations with. So the Talmud acknowledges that Joseph was not the father of Jesus and that there's something unusual about the birth of Christ. Now, this is the kind of rumor or alternative explanation that would be circulating by the enemies of Christ around his birth. So the virgin birth is possible with an all-powerful God. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and 
we see that in the historical work of the Gospels, there's something unique about the birth of Christ. So we have a reasonable case for the virgin birth, that Christ's birth was indeed unique. Now, the next question is this, why did God need a virgin birth? Well, there's several reasons for that. We'll, we'll just cover a few, but one is to fulfill prophecy. We went over a couple here, Genesis 3:15, that he had to be born the seed of a woman, so he had to be human. According to Isaiah 9:6, he had to be human, but also divine, Emmanuel, God with us. So he would be human, 100% man, but he would also be 100% God. He also, to fulfill prophecy, had to be born in the line of David. You remember Christ is called the son of David. Now being virgin born of Mary fulfills the biblical prophecies. Jesus was born a human from the seed of Mary. Also, she is from the line of David. We see in the lineage from Luke and even Matthew that both Mary and Joseph come from the line of David. Therefore, he is a descendant of David. Now, we needed a Savior who would be human to redeem mankind, but also perfect without sin. And the question is, how could absolute holiness reside in a body of sinful human flesh? Throughout the generations, the human body has inherited a sin nature from our forefathers, Adam and Eve, along with genetic and physical defects. Now, 1 Peter 1.19 and other Old Testament passages prophesy that the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, needed to be perfect and without blemish. So in order to be the Savior of men, the Messiah had to be human, but he also had to be perfect without sin. That's the only sacrifice that can take away the sins of mankind. And this would not be possible through the normal reproductive process. If Jesus was conceived in the same way as other humans, he would inherit the sin nature and a defective body which would disqualify him as our savior. It says in Romans 8.3, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So not exactly, all right, uh, but similar. So the virgin birth, this unique birth, allows Christ to have a human body of flesh that is not tainted with sin, as all human bodies are, as they are produced through the normal reproductive process. Christ's unique process allows God to incarnate in a body not of sinful flesh. That's why he's born in a special way. So the virgin birth fulfills the requirements then of biblical prophecy and allows Christ to be a perfect sacrifice. As we close out, you might be asking, well, what's, what's the significance for us? Well, if Jesus is virgin born, then he is the unique divine son of God. Because only God can create life. You know, in Exodus chapter 8, this is when Moses is performing all the miracles there in Egypt of the Exodus. And the magicians are able to counterfeit Moses' miracles. However, when it comes to creating life, Moses throws up dust and it turns into gnats. At that point, 
the magicians say, this is the hand of God. Because Satan and counterfeit magicians and others cannot create life. Only God can. And science has not shown that life can be created through natural causes. One of the things we're going to study is Darwin's theory. And scientists have never proved how we got life from non-life. Right? The best theory out there was the Ure Miller experiment back there in the 60s. But that is a failure because Ure Miller had the wrong atmosphere. They've never answered how we got life from non-life. And only God, the creator of life, can create life. Second, we have a unique, sinless Savior. You look throughout the Gospels. The enemies of Christ really had nothing, no sin that they could really point out in the life of Christ. Even Christ's closest disciples stated that he had no sin. And that makes Christ unique. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, right? He was a sinner. In fact, several times in the Quran, he's told to confess his sin and repent and turn from sin. Buddha was a sinner who struggled with illegitimate desire. Confucius wrote about the perfect gentleman, right, or the ideal man. And he said, of the ideal man, I have not attained that ideal, nor have I met anyone who has. But only in Christ you have a perfect sinless Savior. Therefore, only Jesus qualifies to be that perfect sacrifice for all mankind. And therefore, only Jesus then can bring eternal life. It's only his sacrifice that could pay the price for our sin. No one else in the history of mankind qualifies to be our Savior. And finally, we have a God who can relate to us in every way. God did not stand by passively and look as we struggled in trying to pay for our sin and redeem ourselves. God saw our hopeless, helpless situation. And instead of passively saying, well, you guys knew the rules and you blew the deal. So work it out on your own and I hope you make it. No, we have a unique God, different from any other God in any other religion, in that he saw us in our pain and in our suffering, and he left his throne in heaven and entered into our sinful, fallen, violent world, and entered into our struggle, and struggled alongside with us, and suffered alongside us, experiencing the greatest pain that anyone has ever experienced. And he died uh, on the cross for our sins, paying the price for our sin, that by believing in him, we can have eternal life. So we have a God who entered into our world and suffered alongside of us and experienced all that we experienced in this world to bring us redemption and eternal life. So we have a God who can sympathize with us and entered into our world, suffered the same things that we suffer to a much greater extent. Therefore, we have a God who can relate in every way with us. Right? There's no other redemption story that is so great as the Christmas story. And one of the great things about the Christmas story 
is that it is indeed not a legend, but it is indeed history. So as we celebrate Christmas this coming week, hope that we can all remember the great sacrifice that Christ made, but also understand this is not mythology or some kind of fairy tale or something we just have to take by a leap of faith. But there is good evidence and good reason indeed to believe in the virgin birth and in the Christmas story. Well, thanks for joining us here for another episode of Question of the Week. I invite you to go to our website here at evidenceandanswers.org to hear more of evidences for faith and hope in Jesus Christ. You can hear all over 500 podcasts from our many years and many interviews of top scholars from all over the world. And we'll try to answer your questions here on future shows here on Question of the Week. I say to you, aloha and Merry Christmas. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucarat. <laughs>